In the first reading from the book uh, of the prophet Isaiah, we already catch a glimpse of what the main theme of the gospel that we read today uh, is going to be. Um, For the people of Israel, back in the time of the prophet Isaiah, the one who suffered and the one who was a servant was low. That was the very nature of someone who was low, is that they suffered because if you suffered, it was because God was against you. And if you were a servant, it was because you hadn't made well in society. And then the prophet Isaiah presents this great figure that's known as the suffering servant, combining precisely these very two concepts that the people of Israel try always to shun and to avoid, um, and points this one out, this suffering servant out, as one who, who, through his suffering and his service, he wins a victory. And he brings, he, it says, because of his affliction, he shall see the light in the fullness of days. Through his suffering, my servant shall justify many, and the guilt shall uh, he bear. So we have this reversal uh, of the understanding that we have of suffering and of service. These are two things that are in some way related, uh, but we also in our world today have very easily fall into these same ideas, that the, the one who serves is the lower one, um, and the one who suffers is, you know, just turn your head away if you can. Try not to get involved with the suffering of others. In the meantime, we do everything we can with our exercise programs and our pills and all the other things to avoid in every way we possibly can to avoid suffering. Um, But here there's a a glimpse of a light on a new meaning of service and of suffering and indeed of a complete overturning of the sense of what greatness is because we will find in Jesus the greatness. So, Let's go to the gospel and let's look right away at what happens here. So, James and John, this is Mark's gospel. Mark is a teacher par excellence. For a long time, the book of Mark was kind of ignored. It was the least interesting. They thought it was the least interesting gospel because everything in Mark and in Luke, almost everything in Mark and in Luke, are also in Matthew and and uh, Luke. Um, so the Gospel of Mark was considered, well, there's really nothing new there. But as the years have gone by and as the attempt to figure out how the Gospels came together in the first place uh, advanced, the Gospel of Mark emerged ever more clearly as a great book composed with great deliberation and attention by a teacher, by one who is testifying Mark is more than any other gospel, the gospel of a witness. The gospel of a witness who's telling of the great things that happened in his life and around him and to him. And here he's telling the story of the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, two of the great apostles, two of the ones that Jesus brought up on the mountain for the transfiguration, two of the ones that Jesus will bring into the Garden of Gethsemane with him, You know, in each of these cases, there are three chosen from among the 12. These are the 
the, the, the special ones, in a sense. They go to Jesus, with Jesus, to his most intimate moments. And two of these come to him, and they make this request to him. We want to sit one at your right and one at your left when you come into your kingdom. When is he going to come into his kingdom? Well, it so happens that the very verses of the gospel immediately before this gospel that we just read, the verses that, we, that come immediately before are Jesus foretelling his journey to Jerusalem and his suffering there, his being scourged and being put to death. Uh, he foretells that. And the very next scene we see is these two guys saying, well, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and on your left? In other words, can, be, can we be your closest collaborators? Can we be the ones who most share your power and authority? That's what they want, right? They want this authority. They want this power. And the other 12, the other, well, the other, the other 10, we can't really entirely exempt them either. We can't say, oh, well, these two, uh, really have a, th a thirst for power and the others don't. Because we see that the others become indignant. They become indignant. Who do you think you are? I should be the one who's up there. So they're all tainted with this sense of wanting a power of dominion, a power of dominion. But Jesus has come not for a power of dominion. And Jesus wants, is, is going to teach his apostles this power that is not a power of dominion. It is a power of attraction. It is a power of attraction. This is a very, very important and deep lesson for us to learn. The way Jesus wants to win us over to himself is by his beauty, by his beauty. And, and what I mean by his beauty, I mean the beauty that he brings the beauty of life that he introduces us to, the happiness, the joy, the fulfillment, the greatness to which he introduces us. Jesus does not come to bring about a, a, a conversion by the sword or by coercion or by moral authority, but rather to solicit the freedom of you and me to his cause, to his, to belonging to him, to recognize our belonging in him, he wants to do that by introducing us, by allowing us to see, by allowing us to perceive his goodness. And this is what, this is why these apostles get it completely wrong. But Jesus, it's interesting to watch the pedagogy of Jesus because Jesus doesn't put them down for their desire for greatness. In fact, if anything, Jesus affirms their desire for greatness. But what he does tell them is that their perception of the path to greatness is completely wrong and that they're going to have to look at Jesus to see what that path to greatness is. Can you drink that cup of which I will drink? This word cup for the people of Israel, we find it in many places in the scripture and it always means the lot that is coming to me, right? So can you, can you go through what I'm going to go through that we just spoke about a few moments ago? The earliest fathers of the church thought that the apostles taught that because Jesus was talking about his death, that his kingdom had to come first. So they kind of thought it's here already almost practically. Because if we're going to Jerusalem and he's going to die, his kingdom must be right here, right now. 
and they want these generalships or these princedoms or, 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 or positions of recognition of power. Jesus instead tells them that it is by drinking the chalice that he drinks, by drinking the cup that he drinks, and by receiving the baptism that he receives, that they can truly be great. And that's for you and me too. We can listen to this directly and apply it directly to ourselves. If we can, if we can enter into this life that he is giving to us, not as a way of ruling, not as a way of acquiring power, but as a way of loving, a way of giving of ourselves, a way of serving, then this will set us on that road to greatness. This is the path to the greatness that these apostles um, desire. Then Jesus tells them that this position for which they ask, which he would give them to, give to him, give to them, if it could contribute anything to their happiness, but it is not for them, and therefore he will not give it to give it to them, and he will remind them um, that whoever wishes to be first among you, in other words, let's just put that into very concrete phrases. Whoever wants to be great, if you want to be a great human being. If you want to be a great human being, what is it that you have to do? Do you have to win a Nobel Prize? Do you need to become president of a nation or a corporation? Uh, do you need to um, become the greatest in some sport or some other human endeavor? No, you don't. You don't need to do these things. If it's given you to do these things, well and good. But there's something else that you need that these things won't cover. Even if you get all of them, they still won't cover something that's more essential and more vital to you. Um, whoever wishes to be the first among you will be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came, did not come to, ser to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Our life is in this, is entering into the relationship with him, living our life like him, the imitation of Christ, the following of Christ, discipleship. This is the path to greatness. There is no other path to greatness. About 10 days ago, we celebrated the feast of Saint Teresa of Lisieux, this saint who died at 24 years old, who had dreams in some way, maybe a little bit like James and John. In her youth, she had dreams of becoming a great missionary and bringing the gospel to the furthest ends of the world. In particular, she dreamt of being a great missionary to China. But in the meantime, she was a, a young, small, not very healthy uh, young woman, uh, clearly unable to do these things. And she had to discover, she had to discover, and oh, 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 how she did discover where true greatness can be found. She found that the, she found the greatness for which her heart yearned. True nobility, true greatness, not a, not a, a kind of a second-hand greatness, but real greatness. She found that real greatness within the walls of that convent in Lisieux, where she entered and never left. She found her greatness there. But it's the same for all of us. We find our greatness in following our vocation, faithfully and loyally. 
That's the way we find our greatness, by the discipleship of Christ, by living with him, by living for him, by living with him. Before the, at the end of the Eucharistic prayer, we always say, through him, with him, and in him. Think of those three um, prepositions, through him, with him, and in him. Um, those words tell us about our relationship with Christ. We live through him, we live in him, and we live with him. And my friends, do that, and your life will be great. Everything else, everything else is ultimately what we have to do while that's happening, what we do while that's happening, right? Some will be famous, some will be not famous. Uh, it's not a question of the one or the other. It's the question of what really counts. And what really counts is not the titles, the fame, the importance, the bank balance. None of that counts. It's there. It's real. We live it. But we live it all in key of that discipleship. All as part of that discipleship. And it's only living this way. This is the only possibility there is for us to truly feel and experience and know in our lives what it is to be truly alive, what it is to truly live. And that, my friends, is the greatness to which Jesus wants to introduce us. As we continue our stewardship uh, season, uh, we're on a pause this weekend. There's no specific message or cards this weekend, but we do still need to keep this fact in mind because one of the great ways that we have uh, to, to, um, to affirm in our lives this discipleship, this through him, with him, in him, is through our support for the Christian community as it exists here in Broomfield. So consider it, mix that in to your considerations about your, um, your service and your financial support of nativity and your engagement of your life uh, in our community.